Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. The epistle to the Colossians in chapter 3, about midway through your New Testaments. As we continue in our series through this book, we are this morning in a new chapter, really a new section of the book. Paul transitions here in a major way. I'll say more about that in a moment. I'd like us to read together this morning Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. Please follow along as I read Colossians 3 beginning in verse 1. Paul writing to the Christians at Colossae. says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray as we have prayed many times that what we have not you would give us, what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us, for Jesus' sake and by your word. Amen. As I said, we enter a new section in our series in Colossians this morning. Uh, We're not just beginning a new chapter. You know, of course, the chapters and verse numbers, those weren't originally in uh, the text of Scripture. Editors later put those in there, but they've done a good job here in dividing a new chapter and introducing a new chapter and Colossians 3, verse 1. If you've been with us in the series or if you're familiar with the book of Colossians, you know that in Colossians 1, the theme of the book is introduced. The theme of the book is the centrality and the supremacy and the preeminence of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse 15, He is said to be the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things indeed were created by Him and through Him and for Him. He's also said to be the firstborn from the dead that in all things He might have preeminence. He is Lord over the first creation and Lord over the new creation. As we move into chapter 2, the theme of the preeminence of Christ continues, but there we're told in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul pivots and he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, now so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, Paul is saying, as you receive Jesus, the Son of God, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the sovereign, supreme, and preeminent one, you must also walk in Him. The Christian life is one of a near walk in communion with the person of Jesus Christ. We don't just believe Him at one point and receive Him at one point and then go on and live however we choose. We are to live our whole lives in submission to and in communion with Jesus Christ as the Lord. Our whole lives are to be conditioned and regulated and defined by where we stand in relationship to Him, the preeminent Christ. And so Paul introduces this idea now of walking in Christ, and the rest of the book really is opening up what it means to walk in Christ, what it means to follow Jesus as the Lord. What does the Christ-centered life look like? What does the life lived in submission to Jesus look like? Now, we've seen in the last number of weeks that Paul first introduces this idea of walking in Christ against the backdrop of some heretical teaching that was being taught in the Colossian context. Our brother Rex helped us greatly with that last Sunday. There were all sorts of mistaken notions about what it meant to live the Christian life, and the Colossians were vulnerable to this heresy that was being 
taught to them that involve various elements. We don't understand it exactly, but some level of mysticism, asceticism, religious formalism, do's and do nots, and certain regulations that reflected human traditions and man-made laws, not the way that Christ had prescribed for them. Now we get to chapter 3. Now Paul is going to tell us positively what it means to live a Christ-centered life, what it means to walk in Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? How are we then to live? If the Lord has shown us His grace and saved us and nailed our record of debt to the cross, what does it look like now to follow Christ and to live in Christ? And this is the question Paul is answering in Colossians chapter 3. He begins with an overall summons to adopt a mindset that reflects our new identity in Christ. And we're going to consider that truth this morning in verses 1 through 4. And then he will go on to expand in the following verses of chapter 3 uh, on this theme of following Jesus, of walking in Christ, by contrasting the old way of life lived outside of fellowship and union with Christ and the new way of life that is lived in union with Him and in submission to Him. Okay, so we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 4, the introduction to Paul's argument here. If we're going to make sense at all of what Paul will tell us in chapter 3, uh, we, Bible people, need to have a good handle on a particular doctrine, a particular truth that has already been introduced in Colossians. It's a major truth in Paul's writings. Uh, some have suggested that this is the most significant contribution the Apostle Paul makes to the theology of the New Testament. The doctrine I'm talking about is often referred to as the doctrine of union with Christ. So, so happily, if, if you're here, you're visiting, you're not familiar with the teachings of Christianity, one of the central doctrines of the New Testament is that all those who the Lord Jesus saves, He brings into union with Him. He brings into a living, vital relationship with Him such that we now have His righteousness, and we experience communion and fellowship with Him, and we experience the wiping away of all of our sins and the transfer of His righteous record and all the privileges and the inheritance that belong to Jesus. All those who are Christians, born again, have turned from their sin and repentance and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament teaches they are said to be in union with Christ. Now, what I'm about to say about union with Christ, if you've been here with us for a few years, you've heard me talk about this before. This is an important distinction to keep in our minds when we think about the doctrine of union with Christ, okay? It's helpful to think of the doctrine of union with Christ in terms of two dimensions, uh, two levels, two tracks, two ways in which the New Testament writers speak about our union with Christ. The first, and I think the most common, is to understand union with Christ in terms of what we could say is our objective position in Christ. Union with Christ has, first of all, an objective dimension. So it is true of you, Christian, no matter how you lived this week, if you are truly a child of God, you are objectively, truthfully, factually, positionally united to Jesus, and nothing can change that. If you're His, you're His. You have died in Christ. You have been raised in Christ. These things are true of you regardless of your performance. Christ has made them so. If you are truly a Christian, having turned from sin and believed on Him and been born again, you are objectively, positionally united to Christ. And all of our hope is in that objective, positional union with Christ. But then there is a second way, a second dimension or level in which the New Testament writers talk about union with Christ. And that is in a, what we could call a subjective and experiential dimension. That is to say, there's a life to be lived in union with Christ. 
And that life lived in union with Christ looks a certain way, and it proceeds out of our objective positional union in Christ. Okay, so here's how this works. Romans chapter 6, verse 8, you don't need to turn there. But listen to how Paul works with both our objective positional union and our subjective experiential union. He says, now if we have died with Christ, objective position, we have died with Christ. That's just true of us. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So he's only talking now about what's objectively true of Christians through Christ. We have died to sin. The death He died was once for all, and in our union with Christ, we too die to sin. Then he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You see, now we've entered more subjective and experiential track. That actually now in your experience, become who you are. Live out the reality that is to proceed from union with Christ in your experience and in your behavior and in your attitudes and in your conduct. Sin no longer has dominion over you, objectively, and yet Paul has to say, therefore let not sin reign in your mortal body. Live as one united to Christ. Okay, so we're going to see this in our text this morning. We're going to see it in the very first verse, Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you have been objective, fixed, positional. You are Christian raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above in your behavior, your experience, your walk with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So that's the doctrine of union with Christ. We have objective and subjective dimensions to it. It's helpful to have that as a backdrop for all we will consider in Colossians 3. And I want us to see how Paul works with this doctrine here as we consider what is to be the prevailing Christian mindset. What does the Christ-centered mind look like? How does it function? How does the mind lived in union with Christ operate? And we will see in verses 1 through 4 that our union with Christ renders us, first of all, dead to things that are on earth, and secondly, raised to things that are above. Those are my two headings this morning. We are, as those united to Christ, dead to things that are on earth, raised to to the things that are above. Consider with me first, the Christian is dead to the things that are on earth. Now, I'm taking the verses out of order here. Because first, Paul introduces the fact that we're raised. I want to start with the fact that we're dead, because I think that will help us to better understand what's going on in verse 1. So look at verse 2 with me. There, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So there's a positive imperative and a negative imperative. I want to look at the negative imperative. Do not set your minds on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, so the basic idea here is not hard to uncover, not hard to find. The basic idea is that Christians have died in Christ to the things of the earth, and their death to these things becomes the grounds of Paul's admonition, his exhortation, his imperative, do not set your minds on things that are on earth. So somehow our union with Christ and our death in Christ as those united to Him is to determine and regulate our attitude, our mindset toward earthly things. Our death in Christ and how we view earthly things are connected to one another. 
You see that, right? Pretty clear. Do not set your mind on the things on the earth, for you have died. It doesn't mean literally our hearts have stopped beating. We have died in Christ and in union with him. And Paul will make this connection between our death in Christ more explicit, its implications more explicit, in verse 5. If you'll cheat and look on to next week's sermon, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Greek word used for earth in Colossians 3.2, that we're not to set our minds on things of the earth, is the same word used for what is earthly in us in Colossians 3 and verse 5. And in both verses, there is death in view. In verse 3, Paul says, for you have died or we have died, Paul uses a more general word, actually the more common word for death in the New Testament to say you have died, this has happened in the past. In verse 5, Paul uses a stronger, more active and forceful word, exhorting the Colossians in their experience to actually put to death or to drown or to overwhelm what is earthly in them. Paul is essentially describing the implications of our union with Christ in His death for our relationship to earthly things. In verses 2 and 3, Paul says, you must not set your minds, as those who have died, on the things that are on earth. And then in verse 5, he calls them to greater action by telling them, therefore, to actually put to death what is earthly in them. So fundamentally, Christians, our relationship to the things of the earth is determined by our union with Christ and our death in Him. As He has died, we die to earthly things. But now we might ask the question, and some of you maybe are wondering about this question, what exactly does Paul have in mind? What exactly is designated by that phrase in verse 2, the things that are on the earth? Isn't it like everything on the earth? Is Paul saying we shouldn't care about our spouses and our families, that we shouldn't care about our jobs, that we shouldn't try to work in order to put food on the table? I mean, we're literally not supposed to care about our health. And what is involved, what does the language connote when he says, put to death the things that are on earth. We're not to set our minds on these things, whatever they are. We're to die to these things. It's then pretty important that we know what they are if we're to be successful in not setting our minds on these things. Okay, so I think there are two things at least that Paul has in mind. Two things. I think we can see both of these in the text itself, one more clear than the other. Two things that Paul has in view here, and thus two things we as Christians should recognize are not to occupy and govern our minds and our lives. Two types of things we're to put off and not set our minds upon. The first is, I think, the clearest and most obvious. What are the things on the earth in the first place? I think Paul has in view here sinful desire for earthly things. Sinful desire for earthly things. And I, I think this is made clear when we look up at verse 5. Okay? I think it's just the plain meaning of what Paul is after. We're to put to death what is earthly in us. So he's not just talking about the material world. There's earthly things within us. And what is earthly in us in verse 5 is equated with sinful actions, behaviors, and attitudes. A devotion to sinful self-indulgence. So Paul says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, verse 5. Sexual immorality. Don't set your mind on sex and sexual sin. Impurity passion. That can encompass a lot of different things. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. I say firstly and fundamentally, when we're told, don't set your mind on earthly things, the first thing I think Paul has in mind 
is a commitment, a running after sinful self-indulgence, sinful desire for earthly things. But secondly, I think we can also say, when I set our mind on things on the earth, there's a little more than just sinful things. I think we can also say Paul has in view a kind of pervasive earthly-mindedness, a kind of pervasive earthly-mindedness. I think this fits best with a contrast Paul is creating. We're to set our minds on things above, where Christ is. But things here on earth, where earthly things are, that's not to govern and regulate and define our lives. I think Paul is saying when he says, do not set your mind on earthly things, he's going after a kind of fixation on earthly concerns, material concerns, things of this world. You might remember if you were in the service last Sunday, Rex talked about how one of the features of the Colossian heresy was a preoccupation with earthly things, worldly things. Paul says these things have to do with the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. To have your mind regulated and oriented to earthly things is to live as though this world is all there is. It is a fascination with the material realm. The person whose mind is set on the things of the earth is one who is taken up entirely with this life and not the life to come. What consumes the earthly-minded is earthly status, earthly wealth, earthly pleasure, material needs and wants, earthly concerns. Simply put, the person who is setting minds on thing, their mind on things on the earth is living as though this world is where it's at. My citizenship and my existence in this world is of higher importance than the world to come and my identity in Christ. The earthly person with the mindset on things on the earth is storing up treasures on earth, not treasures in heaven. And the earthly person is not mindful of the world to come, not mindful of spiritual things, of heavenly things, of things belonging to everlasting life, of things belonging to Christ, of treasures in heaven but rather possesses a mind governed and regulated at all times by things on the earth. I think basically these are the things, at least, that Paul has in view when he says, do not set your mind on earthly things. He's thinking sinful, earthly, fleshly indulgence and wickedness, as well as just a general earthly orientation that we're called also to put off. We are not to set our minds on things that are on earth, for we have died to these things. So what does this mean for us practically, brother, sister? As those who want to live Christ-centered lives and want to know what it means to walk in Christ and to have our minds regulated by the truth and by the right things and not things that are on the earth. Simply it means, as a Christian, I've died to earthly things through saving union with Christ and therefore I am not to set my mind on those things as though my pleasure and my treasure and my satisfaction and my joy and my identity is defined and caught up in earthly things. I am dead to sinful self-indulgence and dead to a preoccupation with the things of this world. I live for the world to come. This is true of the Christian. This is true of the one united to Jesus Christ in His death. We have died to the things of the earth and are to live in a way that manifests that reality. But you'll notice, nonetheless, Paul has to tell us, you have died, but nonetheless he says, do not set your mind on things that are on the earth, which means we as Christians are to do something in our own minds and hearts about this. There's an action required for us. This doesn't just happen, otherwise Paul wouldn't have to say it. 
He says, this is true of you. You've died to the earth, but now you need to live like it. And he gives an active verb saying, set not your mind on these things. This command then necessitates for us, brothers, sisters, certain volitional choices that we're to make, decisions, judgments, behaviors, attitudes that we are to assume in order to fulfill and to live out the identity that we have in Christ. If we're to not set our minds on things on the earth, this will require conscious decision-making, conscious choices. Now, this imperative we're given here, set not your minds on the things that are on the earth, requires us to appreciate something of titanic importance for the Christian life. This is just, I think, huge. Put this in the Christianity 101 class, okay? He says, set your minds on things above. Do not set your minds on things that are on the earth. So here's an important truth we're meant to appreciate. Christian, hear me on this. This is crucial if we're going to live Christ-centered lives pleasing to the Lord Jesus. Brother, sister, you as one united to Christ, born again, son and daughter of God, you as a Christian are responsible to control your mind and command your thoughts. You, Christian, are responsible as one united to Christ to control and regulate your mind and to command your thoughts. You are to take your mind in hand and direct it. You're to take your intellectual space, your mind, your thoughts, and command them, direct them, master them. Well, people say, I can't do that. How can you command your thoughts? How can I tell myself what to think? I can't control what I think. I can't control what I want and where my mind goes. What I think about is what I think about, and what I want is what I want. I can't control those things. My thoughts, my impulses, my desires, I can't direct these things and command these things. Of course you can. Where do we get this idea that we actually can't command our thoughts? direct our attitudes. I just am what I am, and what I think is what I think, and what I want is what I want, and I can't control any of that. What do you think self-control is? Do we talk about self-control anymore? What is self-control? Self-control is saying, I'm feeling, issuing up within me certain thoughts and attitudes and desires and appetites and behaviors, but what I do, instructed by truth and beauty and virtue and the will of Christ, I master myself. I command my desires and my impulses and the thoughts that arise within me. I say to this thought, bad thought, get out of here. Good thought, I'm going to hang on to that. Whatever things are noble, true, of good report, dwell on these things. These commands like this, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Assume that we have the ability as the children of God and those who have been united to Christ. We have the God-given ability and internal power given us by grace to control and regulate our minds and to determine what we will set our minds upon and what we will set our minds off of. And I just want to say at this point, I hope you appreciate, especially you young people can appreciate, how radically different this perspective is to so much that we're taught. So we see this in a lot of different conversations and debates and things going on in our day, but it is assumed that your authentic self, who you are, is determined by whatever comes most natively to you. So if you prefer a certain sexual partner, if you feel a certain intuition about yourself, 
uh, whatever sort of issues forth from within, that's really who you are. Okay, Christianity demolishes that. It says that's actually for the Christian the exact opposite of who you are. You feel sinful urges, sinful appetites, sinful desires. You feel the urge to make a sinful choice. And what does Paul say? Hey, sin doesn't have dominion over you anymore. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. You push that sin down, and you give life to the virtues that Christ calls us to and the grace that is alive within each Christian. You can set your mind off of earthly and worldly and sinful things, and you can set your mind on things that are above. The Bible expects of the Christian that he or she will command themselves that they have the ability and responsibility from Christ to direct their own thoughts and minds away from earthly and ungodly things unto heavenly and holy things. For after all, they have died in Christ. There is a new power at work within them. They have actually, truthfully, objectively died to earthly things. Listen, therefore they can, brother, sister, you can determine what you will set your mind upon. Paul assumes as much. Why else? Would he exhort them to say, set your mind on things above. Take your mind in hand. Direct your thoughts. Master your thoughts. Command your thoughts toward heavenly things, not toward earthly things. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We must do this. To take our minds, to set them on the things that are above and off the things that are on the earth. Sinful things, earthly preoccupations and concerns. Paul's focus is on our responsibility to regulate and control our thoughts. Your mind is not simply subject to alien forces and the spiritual and cultural winds around you. It can, and it must be by the help of Christ and by the power of grace, be controlled and directed. We should never give license or credence or face to the idea that we have no control over our thoughts. Parents, you have to think about this in the way you talk to your kids. Help them understand this from an early age. We're not just subject to whatever thing pops up in our minds, whatever someone plants there. Teach your kids self-control. Teach them about how to meditate and to think upon things of God and heavenly things, virtuous and pure and beautiful things, and to get their minds off of worldly things and sinful things and earthly things, the things that are on the earth. This is a basic biblical truth. The Christian mind is meant to be commanded and directed, and as our text tells us, it is not to be directed toward things of the earth, but things that are above. So to illustrate this, here is the Christian whose mind is altogether preoccupied with earthly and material things, uh, with an obsession with money, with shopping, with finding her identity and having certain possessions and comforts. What is the imperative for that person? You need to take yourself in hand. You need to recognize who you are in Christ and that you're dead to sin and dead to things that are on the earth, and you are not to set your mind and your heart and your world on those things. Instruct your mind and your thoughts so as to direct your behaviors and your conduct. Here is the Christian whose mind continually goes to lust, to sexual fantasy, to elicit videos online. What's that Christian to do? That Christian is to reckon himself dead to those things is to grab control of his mind and say, I'm not going to set it on earthly things. I'm going to lift my gaze upward to heavenly things, not on things that are on the earth. Here's the person fixated on self. I'm at all times concerned about how I feel and how hard my life is. 
I'm thinking about how I feel, if I'm tired, or if I'm depressed, or if I'm anxious, or what I will wear, or where I will go, or how I look, or if there are any threats to my health and my happiness, if I'll have enough for tomorrow, or whether or not people admire me, or how I'm coming across in social situations. I'm thinking about myself from an earthly perspective constantly. Wrapped up and absorbed in earthly concerns that do nothing but focus on me, my status, my comfort, my happiness. What's the prescription in this passage for a Christian caught up in this way of thinking? Get your mind, brother, sister, off of earthly things, including yourself. Whether or not you have enough clothing or food and drink, or if you're the popular person, or if everything in the family is going well, or, or whether or not, you know, you're going to succeed in every dimension and season of your life and have all your heart's desires. Do not set your mind on yourself and your earthly desires and wants and feelings. Set it on Christ and the things that are at His right hand. Under this first point, dead to things that are on the earth, this is Paul's point, do not set your mind on what's earthly. Directed away from sinful and earthly desires, directed away from an earthly orientation, worldly pleasures and preoccupations, Directed away from an obsession with this world's goods, for you have died, Christian, to these things. Now, secondly, second point, the final point, we're dead to things that are on the earth, we're raised to the things that are above, raised to the things that are above. Look again at our passage, Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So we've seen the implication for our minds as Christians of being united with Christ in His death. It's that we die to earthly things. We set not our minds on earthly things. Now we see the implication of being raised with Christ. If then you have been raised, so in light of this objective positional union you have with Christ, there's a subjective experiential positive course of life that is to follow. And this course that we're to pursue, that we're to follow, is given to us in terms of two imperatives. In the original language, there's two imperatives. You can see it in English. Two imperatives. First of all, Paul says, seek the things that are above. And then verse 2, he says, set your minds on things that are above. I think those are two distinct ideas. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. First of all, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This speaks fundamentally to our aims and our desires, and our goals. What do we want? Christian, what do you want? What do you treasure? What do you desire? What will satisfy you? For the Christian, it cannot be earthly things. I mean that like definitionally. For the Christian, it cannot be earthly things. For those who have been united to Christ, we have created within us desires and appetites that can only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, the idea that my appetites and my desires at the heart level can be satisfied with money or sex or relationships 
or golf or shopping or whatever. It's just sort of like unfathomable. Like, what even is a Christian? Christians are those who are satisfied in Christ. And therefore, it's intolerable the notion that our God-given desires for heavenly things and for the person of the Son of God and for walking in His heavenly kingdom forever and ever, that those things could be satisfied by anything the earth could give us. There's nothing this world can offer me to satisfy those desires that can only find their satisfaction in another world, a world for which we have been created. No, if we have been raised with Christ, it can only be heavenly things that satisfy us, things above where Christ is. We're talking about eternal things, things that won't pass away, things that are ours in Christ like salvation and the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, holiness, fellowship and communion with God, the treasures that are forevermore at His right hand. These are the things we're called to seek as those who have been raised with Christ. Jesus Himself, did He not tell us, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He told us to store up treasures in heaven. Paul speaks of those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. To them, God will give eternal life. These are the things we're to seek as those who have been raised with Christ. If you're not a Christian here, I just want to correct maybe a notion you've heard from some Christians who need to be taught better. Okay, to come to Jesus is not to say, well, put off all pleasures, never enjoy yourself ever again, and just deny yourself. What the Christian message is saying is actually you need to upgrade your desires. You need to recognize sin will never satisfy you. You need to recognize the outcome for all those who live a sinful life is wrath forever before a just and holy and wrath-filled God. No, what you need to recognize is you're made for more. You need to recognize that there is within you the capacity to know God and to experience Him and to have satisfaction in Him. The Christian life, the decision to follow Christ, is the decision to exchange lower pleasures with higher pleasures. They say, I don't want this swill of sin. I want the feast, the banquet that is mine in Christ. It does require some measure of self-denial in this life. It does require that we say no to our sinful urges. But it is because we are pursuing the higher pleasure of union and fellowship and paradise forever with Christ. When we preach the gospel and we invite sinners to come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're actually inviting you to be happy and to be whole, and to be well, and to have what your soul needs. We are invested not in your misery. We are invested not in you just, you know, having that stiff upper lip and just kind of bucking down and pursuing life that way. We are interested in your happiness, not just in the next five minutes or six months, but in the next 10,000 years. Living forever in paradise with God in sinless, peerless perfection. It is a call to joy in God. The call to set our mind on heavenly things is actually raising the stakes, directing us to that thing, that only thing that can satisfy the Christian, treasures that are found in Christ. And so, Christian, I just ask you, do you desire the things of God? Do you treasure Christ and the joys and pleasures that are found in Him? Do you hunger and thirst for eternal life and the full salvation and inheritance that belongs to all those who are in Christ. Do you find Jesus 
lovely, and desirable. Do you want him and the life that he brings? Do you seek the things that are above where Christ is? I want to read a passage, and you can just listen as I read. This passage, I think, provides a very good description of one who is seeking the things that are above. It's actually in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 16. It's written by David. David, things didn't always pan out for David. And he wrote often in the midst of great sorrow and great pain. And yet listen to the heavenly perspective that was given to David. Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. For you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you think of your Jesus that way? At your right hand are pleasures. Pleasures. Pleasure is a good thing. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you have this heavenly mindedness? Finding your portion, your cup, your satisfaction, your pleasure in Christ. Of course, David didn't fully understand the significance of the words that he wrote. He was heavenly minded. He was looking for the pleasures at God's right hand. He says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But notice what Paul says in our text in Colossians 3.1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. At your right hand, David said, are pleasures forevermore. Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Pleasures at God's right hand. Christ at God's right hand. He is our greatest treasure. He's all that we want. He's the only one who can satisfy us, and the call is to seek Him. Those things pertaining to the eternal life that He offers. Is this your attitude, Christian? I don't want anything else. Nothing on earth can satisfy me. I want Christ. I want His kingdom. I want His law. I want His will. I want His grace. I want the treasures that are found at His right hand. I want to see God. I want heaven. I want eternal life with my Savior, my Shepherd, my Lord, and my Redeemer forever and ever. Leave the world Give me Jesus, and that'll be enough for me. Again, to the young person here who's not come to Christ, not following Jesus, kind of off at a distance, you're watching to see how this is going to go. Maybe you're a visitor here and you don't know the Lord. I want to make something very clear. We don't come to Jesus merely to escape hell. Blessedly, if you come to Jesus, you will escape hell. But we come to Jesus ultimately because we want Him. I see in Him my perfect, lovely, beautiful, awesome Savior and Lord. And I come to Him because He is worthy. 
because I got nowhere else to go. The words of eternal life are only in him, his person, his nature, his character, his attributes. I'm coming to him. And in so doing, we escape everlasting wrath, but we have way more than that. We have pleasures forevermore at his right hand. We have everlasting life. We have the things that are above. Well, there's a second command. Set your minds, he says, on things that are above. I think it's a different idea. I've talked about this already negatively, that we're not to set our minds on things that are on the earth. We're told to seek the things that are above and then to set our minds on those things. And as we saw earlier, this requires volitional action, conscientious choices. It's things we're to do to set our minds positively now on the things that are above. I'm not going to say more about that verb and the actions required because we've already considered the whole setting of the mind and what that involves. Now we're saying it's not just don't set your mind on things on the earth, but actively, proactively, conscientiously, intelligently set your mind on the things that are above. So let me ask this now. Like you hear me say that. I get it. I can control my mind. I can command my thoughts. I, I see that now. But how do I do that? I accept what the scriptures say. Clearly, Paul expects I can set my mind, like I can do this. I can set my mind on things that are above. But how does one do that? What helps are available to me? I'm too caught up in myself and my sin, my worldliness, and I've been all caught up in earthly concerns, and that's just pervaded my thinking. And I want to, I hear you, I want to be more heavenly minded. I want to be more spiritually minded. I want to learn to look upward and to find my soul satisfaction in the things that are above. But how, as a Christian, can I begin to do this? What helps are available to me? And I want to share these things by way of application. How does one set one's mind on things that are above? What helps are there for all of us who wish to do this? There are four things. These are not unique things. These are not like some golden formula or something like that. You're not going to be impressed or surprised by any of the things I'm about to say. But it is these very basic, simple things that will cultivate and nurture within us a mindset that is consumed with and satisfied in things that are above. Okay, you want to be heavenly minded? Number one, develop a rich devotional life. Develop a rich devotional life. Talk to God. Reserve time every day to read His Word and to pray to Him. If you're not doing this now as a Christian, you're in trouble. Just commit, what, whatever I'm going to miss, it's not going to be this. I'll sooner miss breakfast, I'll sooner miss my cup of coffee, I'll sooner miss my lunch break than miss time with Jesus Christ. I'm going to cultivate a rich devotional life where I read and take in His words and have my mind refreshed and regulated by the truths of Scripture, and I'm going to pray to Him and talk to Him, not just in that time, but even throughout the day, I'm going to pray without ceasing. Heavenly mindedness is not going to come if we're not talking to God and sharing our burdens with Him, the one who is in heaven. Develop a rich devotional life. Number two, throw yourself as much as possible into the life of the church. Throw yourself as much as possible into the life of the church. I'm convinced more and more, not just in my observation of people, but in my own Christian life, that if we're going to be heavenly minded, if we're going to be faithful to Christ, if we're going to slay our sin and live to godliness, what we need is more conflict church and not less. Get a thousand messages out there, a thousand temptations out there, out in that world, out there, 
Satan and the flesh and the world are seeking to undo heavenly mindedness, the spiritual life, treasuring Christ and His Word and holiness. If I'm struggling being heavenly minded, I want to be more heavenly minded, what is needed is more contact with the church body. Because when we come into this place, I think one of the main reasons the Lord has created a weekly rhythm of gathering for worship, coming together as God's people, it's that we could have our minds recalibrated and refreshed. I'm a child of God. That temptation and that thing that seems so like that was everything. Somehow in the context of being with God's people and singing praise to Him and looking to Him to be my portion and hearing the Scriptures read and taught, I'm helped. I see more clearly now. Are you familiar with Psalm 73? You know Psalm 73, Asaph says, I was like a brute beast before the Lord. He says that I began to doubt whether it was really even worthwhile to follow the Lord. He said, if I cleanse my heart in vain, he's looking around at the world and he's looking around at sinners and he's like, why do I even follow the Lord? Like, what am I doing? And resolution for him comes, he says, then I entered the assembly of God and then I could discern their end. And it's then that he says, you are my portion and my lot. You Guide me in the way that I should go. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's none I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. Well, how did that happen for Asaph? It wasn't sitting off on his own, withdrawn from the church body, where Satan could easily pick off the weakling away from the herd. It was when he was in the assembly of God's people before the means of grace that his attitude was changed. He recognized that way leads to death. I will not be fixated on things on the earth. I need to lift my gaze heavenward and to recognize my portion and my cup is in God. And I'm satisfied in Him. And earth has nothing to offer me. So practically, brother, sister, you want to be more heavenly minded? Prize this time. If you're healthy and you're in town, make this commitment. Wild horses couldn't drag me away from the assembly of God's people. The doors are open. God's going to be worshipped. The means of grace are going to be there. I'm going to be there. And this room that's starting to fill up, if it means we have to sit here on the floor or stand up there in the back or open a door here or there to hear the Word of God preach and to have our perspective set on eternal and everlasting things, I'm going to do it. The kids had a bad attitude on the way in. Well, we're going to get it together. We're going to figure it out because I need to be in the worship of God. There are other opportunities in the life of the church, small group gatherings, equipped classes, Bible studies, many opportunities for saints to gather together and to minister to one another and for the means of grace to go forth for the edification of our souls. Let's pursue these things with zeal and with ardor. Number three, and I'll be briefer here. Develop a rich devotional life. Throw yourself into the life of the church. Number three. Saturate your life with opportunities to enjoy rich spiritual fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Saturate your life with opportunities to enjoy rich spiritual fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's few things will help us to be heavenly minded than by being with fellow citizens of heaven. People who like us are members of that city are concerned about the concerns of God's kingdom. Christian fellowship is meant to be a means to help us in our walk heavenward. 
There's a very dear couple I met with this week. They are not members of this church. And for understandable reasons, they have not been able to enjoy the fullness of church life lately. A lot of obstacles for them. It's been very hard and very difficult. It has affected them. As someone who knows and loves them, it was evident. It has affected them. And they were able to acknowledge. And they looked with longing. It used to be easier for us to be in the gathering, and we were doing better then. And we had brothers and sisters around us who were encouraging us and helping us. And wife is wrestling through different questions of faith and things like that. I was thinking as we were singing the song, Whatever My God Ordains Is Right, I thought of her. I thought, how she needs to be surrounded by the people of God singing a song like this. How it would help her to recognize my situation that looks so bleak and so grim and so dark. God has a plan in it. And here are 200 of my brothers and sisters who know this to be true also. And I can see testimonies of grace of people who have walked through the same waters I've walked through and they're holding fast to the Lord and they're trusting Christ. Oh, and here comes one now to talk to me and to encourage me and to help me. We need each other. We need each other. If you want to be heavenly minded, pursue relationships and rich spiritual fellowship with people who will point you to the things of God. Direct your gaze away from the things of the earth. Number four, this is kind of a catch-all. Make use of other helps, such as Christian music, good Christian books, sermons and podcasts that focus on the things of God. I remember in a very busy phase of life, I was struggling to be heavenly minded. I asked a mentor for help, and he said, don't be afraid to get scrappy with it. Put the good book on the lower shelf. Put the Christian CD in. This is back when people listened to CDs. Like, like, get rid of all the Led Zeppelin and Simon and Garfunkel. Put in, you're together for the gospel album or whatever. But seriously, put sticky notes on the mirror, on the dashboard. You know, put magnets on the fridge. I don't, whatever's going to help you to take in truth, to understand it, to appreciate it, get scrappy with it. But take conscious steps to regulate and control and command your mind. This is nothing different and what someone who wants to lose weight or build muscle does, what do they do? Well, they throw out the Nutella, you know, or they put the chocolate syrup in the back of the fridge, and they put the apple right there in the front of the fridge, right? And they make sure that they have to pass a gym on their way to work or something like that. All these kinds of things, right? They'll make it easier for you to think about God. Do this with music. Do this with notes. Do this with you know, putting, instead of listening to, you know, whoever political commentator you're going to listen to, go listen to John Piper. Go listen to John MacArthur. Uh, go listen to podcasts that are going to point you to the things of God. Finally, friends, just notice verses 3 and 4 where Paul directs us as we labor to set our minds on the things above. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The point of these verses simply is to say one day we will have all that we seek. This new life you have is hidden with Christ in God. That is to say, it is concealed, it is kept safe, it is under lock and key by Christ. And then verse 4, Christ finally appears at the end of the age. And then what has been concealed and kept and protected and preserved will be fully manifest when he appears. And then we will appear with him in glory. I close finally with this question. We'll be done.
These people who are heavenly minded, what will they look like? What will they be like? What kind of person, citizen, what kind of person would this text produce? You've heard the expression, well, Bob, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. You've heard that? You don't bother with Jane. He's so heavenly minded, she's of no earthly good. She's of no use, he's of no use. Now, if you're heavenly minded, you should be of the greatest earthly good. If you're heavenly minded, you understand things from an eternal perspective, and you actually become deadly earnest about life and about what takes place in the here and now, knowing that it will echo in eternity. And you will become serious about life and death, and you recognize that because heaven and hell are real and because eternity is forever and eternal life is to be had by all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Him, you recognize that actually everything matters. Does it make you no use sleepwalking through life? You recognize everything matters because eternity is real and it lasts forever. And therefore, you're heavenly minded, you care about people. You care about ideas and things, and you care about your sin and the sins of others, and you care about communicating truth and hope and life, and you care about serving other people. You care about pointing them to Jesus and spreading His gospel that can give them access to salvation. You recognize that it all matters because you have peered into heaven through the eyesight of faith, and you understand what the Bible says about those things that are above, and now you live in the light of them. No, the ones who are of the greatest use in this world are those who live in light of the world to come. Let's pray. Our Father, many of us at this point, myself included, are all too conscious that our thinking and our framework and our orientation and our minds have been filled too much with the things of the earth. How easy it is to be fixated on earthly things. Please forgive us and please help us. We know we have died in Christ. We know also we've been raised in Him. Help us to become who we are, to live in light of what's true. Help us to die to the things of the earth, to live to righteousness in the things that are above. Give to us a prevailing eternal orientation, a mindset fixed on the kingdom of God, the concerns of the world to come. We pray increasingly you would help us to mortify base and sinful and earthly desires and that you would create within us by your word deeper and deeper wells that can be filled only with living water, with the things that Jesus gives us, with what is found at your right hand where Christ is seated. May we treasure him, love him, and desire him. May he appear even now to be more lovely to us than he has yet appeared. Please, Lord, may he appear lovely to those who have not yet received him. May they want him and the treasures that are found at your right hand forevermore in Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.